from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco-Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the reality behind the Climate Reality Project, Big Blue's Big Blockchain Play, Should Companies Pass Offsets Onto Consumers, Sustainability Reporting in Stock Exchanges, and How to Keep Your Head During a Presidential Transition. We're keeping it under our hat this week on 350. It's December 9th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey there, Lauren. Hello. How are you? I'm, you know, I'm fine. The world, I don't know, is going to hell, but, you know, I'm doing good. Yeah, other than that, things are great. Exactly. Instead of this, you know, we're just hearing every day uh, things get curiouser and curiouser on the uh, the U.S. Uh, political front. Uh, this week, of course, uh, the president-elect uh, named uh, his uh, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt as the choice for the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Pruitt, uh, a uh, like many of of Trump's appointees, um, are people who are not big fans of the uh, agencies that they are going to be heading up, and so we'll, it'll be a very very interesting thing to watch. Yeah, I believe uh, the New York Times reported that Pruitt is. Uh, perhaps best known for his opposition to the clean power plan of late, he attacked the measure as a, quote, war on coal. So we'll have to definitely see how that pans out. But I think it is interesting to consider sort of what the ramifications of some of these appointments are for companies that have been more outspoken of late uh, about climate policy. Um, it's sort of this issue. We, we've seen lots of letter writing campaigns. Um, there have been White House and initiatives under the Obama administration, all different sorts of things. But interesting, will be interesting to track how that translates into sort of concrete progress. I know our senior writer, Heather Clancy, this week had a piece, uh, an update on Google getting close to its 100% renewables goal. So I think the the more we can follow those specific milestones um, will be beneficial. Yeah, but the one thing we haven't seen much of, and this is I'm sort of curious about how this plays out, is our, our, our CEOs uh, speaking up, standing up, speaking up, raising their hand, raising their voice um, around uh, the, at least some of the perspective moves that the Trump administration may make around climate change and and in also clean water and, and air and so many other issues, um, because these companies are pretty far along and there's... Uh, uh, you know, a couple dozen of them that are themselves leaders in in on climate issues and many others. And um, it'll be interesting to see in an era where, uh, you know, Trump just, just will take on a CEO on Twitter and take on a whole company and berate them and, you know, make an example out of them, uh, whether uh, CEOs are willing to do that, whether they're willing to to make that kind of public statement. Mm-hmm. Boeing, obviously, being a company that was in the crosshairs this week. But it, I they think you're right, though. This is an issue that we've been hearing a lot about, this issue of CEO advocacy or corporate policy advocacy in general around climate issues that's been bubbling up since the Paris climate talks. Obviously, there were lots of business executives on the ground at COP21, a little less so in Marrakesh at COP22, but still. Um, but I think it's interesting because a lot of what we saw in Paris was these side events for businesses that were going on 
on at the same time as COP. But I think there's still this question of like how much, uh, how worthwhile is it for CEOs to actually be in the same room as some of these policymakers? And what should that conversation even look like? Well, for now, let's move the conversation over to the week in review. I have to admit, the last couple of weeks have challenged my sanity a little bit, but we did have a piece this week that put some of what's going on at the national level in perspective. Uh, that was an article titled How to Keep Your Head During a U.S. Presidential Transition that was contributed by Terry Yossi, who is our friend, the president and CEO of the World Environment Center. Right. Terry is always very, very thoughtful. And uh, he's got an interesting career because he was uh, himself with the uh, uh, U.S. EPA it was, it was, uh, on its science advisory board during, uh, well, uh, I guess it was 1881 to 88. So that's those are the Reagan years. And he advised uh, several EPA administrators in Congress on the scientific basis of public health and environmental decisions. So he's been he's been uh, an old Washington hand, I guess, has been watch, watching this space for a long, long time. And I have to say that I loved the piece that he wrote because um, he he really, you know, as an old hand, someone who has the long term perspective, you know, who's seen uh, administrations come and go, probably five or six or seven at this point. Um, gave us four indicators that he thinks are really interesting to watch in terms of how to evaluate the transition from the Obama administration to the forthcoming Trump administration. I like that this piece was broken up sort of into some specific areas to watch instead of just being sort of a broader tear your hair out type of piece. This one, uh, so a couple of the things that Terry keyed into were looking at um, the idea first of ideology versus competence, obviously um, something that we were just sort of alluding to with some of these appointments and other things that are going on. But he also really points out a couple of pretty fascinating comparisons like unilateralism versus collaboration. Collaboration obviously being a big buzzword in the sustainability realm for the last few years. But here he's talking about how sort of this concept of unilateralism, either in a military or an economic context, um, can sort of lead to exposure and risk because you're not really looking at uh, the, the full picture, thinking about what brings people to the table. Um, so I think the point is that the more uh, the U.S. can, or even companies within the U.S. presumably, could work to sort of uh, double down on those collaboration efforts. That will be beneficial. Um, another component that we were uh, referencing, this idea of policy versus markets, where you have a lot of CEOs that are sort of professed free traders, um, whether that's ideas, goods, or people, uh, but they're also speaking out publicly in favor of limits on carbon emissions or other things that you might not necessarily think would naturally follow that ideal. So um, just a couple of things that I think will be good to watch. Another area, though, that I think uh, is also going to be more and more relevant over the next few years is this whole evolution of sustainability in relation to financial markets. So our associate editor, Anya Haldemeiser, had a great piece this week on sustainability reporting in stock exchanges, coming of age. Uh, this is a concept that our reporter, Keith Larson, has covered for a couple of years as well now. Um, 
looking at sort of the evolution of stock exchanges around the world, introducing more sustainability reporting requirements. Yeah, Anya's piece was about a new report that just came out from the United Nations uh, uh, Conference on Trade and Development, looking at uh, the uh, number uh, 21 stock exchanges across the world are introducing sustainability standards in the coming months, joining 17 exchanges that already have them, what they call ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. Uh, and so this is uh, uh, a step to try and put uh, something that's been going on for a long, long time, trying to, to put um, uh, companies on an even more, more even playing field uh, by using their stock exchange participation to, to prod them to do more reporting. Now, I don't know uh, if, if all of these stock exchanges are going to require participation in corporate reporting, sustainability reporting from the get-go in order to be remain on the exchange, but that's the idea is to sort of move in that direction. And the report also does mention sort of specific areas where there needs to be more alignment between sustainability strategies and investor relation teams. Uh, the first one being sort of the really different language that can be used to describe and measure company performance. That's obviously an evolving area of how you translate uh both the urgency of sustainability programs and why they're material to financial concerns, um, but also sort of these more existential issues that like investors wanting their short-term results uh, while sustainability teams tend to focus longer term. And also just really sort of the on the ground day-to-day -day relationships between investor relations types and sustainability team members. And then how do you harmonize the reporting guidelines. I mean, we've had the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, for a long time, and, and it's it's gotten great, great traction, but there's still, you know, as each of these um, stock exchanges, uh, 38 now, you know, put out their guidelines for what kind of reporting, uh, how do you harmonize them and make sure that they're, we're not only harmonizing them among, not only and make sure that we're not only able to compare apples to apples, the uh, companies within an exchange, but compare across exchanges. So this is going to be a really interesting thing to keep watching. Yeah, and the last thing I note is just the list of countries is really interesting. You've got everywhere from Morocco, Lithuania, the Seychelles, um, out in the Indian Ocean. Um, so not not just you know Norway and the Scandinavian countries that we hear about more often. Two different exchanges in Vietnam, one in Hanoi, one in Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah, Qatar, Nigeria, Egypt, Chile, you know, Iceland. I mean, yeah, it's going to be, this is truly becoming a global thing. It's going to be interesting to see, first of all, who's not on there. Uh, and some of the big things I don't see, you know, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of Asia that's not yet represented, notably China. Um, and uh, we've got a lot more of the economy to go, but this is a pretty good start. And another realm where we saw an interesting mix of characters this week was a piece by Kristen Sadermeyer, who is a writer with our good friends over at NCA Magazine. And she took a look this week at a trend toward companies like Amazon, Netflix, and Uber looking to pass their offsets on to consumers. So this is taking on the idea that reducing the carbon footprint of what we buy as consumers isn't necessarily easy, but it's something that companies for a long time have obviously been looking to offset. Uh, offsets obviously being uh, 
tool that are sometimes controversial, depending on um, the the context and the way they're sort of orchestrated. Um, But this particular report took a look at Uber as a model for systems that are um, exploring the way to offset carbon in the ride sharing industry. Um, And so the cost of the offset varied from two cents to 20 cents per trip. Uh, And that was based on an estimate of carbon being priced at about $6 per ton. Um, So this obviously goes a little bit to issues of how companies are pricing carbon based on their industry. Gets a little bit into the weeds, but I think the overall concept of offsetting um, your specific line of of product offerings is interesting. Yeah, and it's it's, it's remarkable to, to look at actually how little it costs to offset an individual transaction like a Uber ride or probably an Amazon shipment of, uh, I, I looked into this a few years ago uh, around uh, shipping and it really wasn't all that much. It's a, you know, a few pennies or a penny or two a mile, although that gets, you know, the, the bigger the distance, uh, uh, obviously that, that adds up. But, but actually, even with longer distance, it was only a few bucks for, to offset the emissions of a package sent by, say, UPS or FedEx. You know, one of the big question, of course, is how much, uh, if at all, this will really change behavior. In other words, will people, um, first of all, you know, patronize places that are offsetting and use those that give give them a competitive advantage, number one. But number two, you know, there's a tendency for people to say, well, I can drive all I want. I'm offsetting it. And so it doesn't really, and it not only does it not change behavior, it might even justify um people doing things that ideally shouldn't be doing in the first place. And so that's always a challenge here. But it's great to see, uh, you know, them looking at, you know, Amazon, Netflix and and Uber as models for how to do this. And, um, you know, it, it's all good if we can, you know, really get this. Uh, we can bring more money into the carbon markets, really educate people that everything has a carbon footprint to it. And it, and while the cost may not be a lot, it, it does all add up. To your point about the behavior change, it was also interesting, the Netflix example, they actually did a survey as, as part of this effort um, to see how people would respond if they sort of gave them this information that based on three different streaming options, one being ultra high res, and then one ultimately having a slightly lower streaming quality, uh, but having a much lower carbon footprint, uh, sort of how consumers would react to that. And they found that 42% of participants said they would allow Netflix to automatically recalibrate and adjust the stream um, to give them a less carbon intensive product. Um, so 42%, I mean, that's not negligible. And I'm sure it would vary, like Uber riders might have a different sentiment. Um, but how you sort of as a company take that into account, I think we'll see a lot more people starting to think about. One of the technologies we're beginning to hear a lot about is something called the blockchain. And our own senior writer, Heather Clancy, had an article this week talking about uh, the blockchain and a little firm called IBM. Uh, Heather, welcome. (laughs) Hey, Joel. Glad to be here. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, First of all, tell us, I mean, for people who are still getting arms around this thing called the blockchain, uh, can you give us the elevator pitch? 
Yeah, and I, I, in a moment, I'll let the Paul Chang, the subject matter expert uh, at IBM that I spoke to, I'll let him uh, get a little bit more into it. But but you, you can think of the blockchain as a as a mechanism. It's the, basically it's a ledger. It helps manage a string of information about a thing. It could be a physical thing or it could be a digital thing. And in the in the case of the original application, which is Bitcoin, that's a digital currency, right? So blockchain. Um, underlies that and and manages all of the transactions. So as something gets switched, as a coin gets switched from one person to another, the thing that verifies that the transaction happened, that verifies the authenticity of who's sending and who's receiving, that's a thing called blockchain. And it, and it basically keeps a record of everything that's happening associated with that thing. So this is a way of recording transactions of any type, whether it's a a sale, a contract, an exchange, any kind of agreement, and doing it in a way that is encrypted, which means that uh, people can't trace it, but it's also public. It's a little confusing, but it's uh, apparently it's located in ledgers all over the internet uh, or out there somewhere, whether it's the internet or not. <laughs> this is where I think people are having trouble getting their arms around it. But it's a way of recording and and making direct peer-to-peer transactions. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's IBM doing with this? So IBM, their role is going to be a facilitator, if you will. If you think about it. They, they're obviously one of the biggest cloud services companies in the world. And they have a project that they're working on that involves blockchain. They're, they have a service that allows organizations to test um, and try out applications without investing in, in their own expertise, right? So blockchain is an esoteric thing. People don't understand it very well, at least right now. It's an open technology, which means there's a lot of experimentation going on. IBM has created a service um, to help test various applications. Um, And as I mentioned before, I spoke with Paul Chang, who's one of the subject matter experts there. And one of the, the fastest growing pilot areas for IBM is in the supply chain in traceability applications. And here's what Paul had to say about that. You know, some, some of the basic fundamental technologies for tracking goods like, uh, you know, barcodes and RFID, they've been around for years and years, um, yet the adoption um, seemed to sort of uh, lag. And uh, I think blockchain is uh, one of those missing pieces that can pull all of this together um, to demonstrate uh, business value. I mean, clearly when you do traceability, whether it's food or drugs, there's definitely value for consumers. I think some of the challenge has been, hey, is there is there benefit to the uh, actors within the supply chain? And I think blockchain um, uh, could be one of those components where it does provide uh, significant benefit uh, to everyone involved in that supply chain. Um, so uh, for, uh, speaking from a consumer's perspective, I, I hope that, uh, you know, this technology is adopted and, uh, you know, we are now able to hopefully, you know, uh, trace our food from, from the source um, to our tables so we know exactly what we're consuming. You know, applicational blockchain within the supply chain is where the whole concept of, um, you know, sustainability, um, managing carbon footprint, creating efficiency, um, and and so that, you know, uh, not only individual companies, but the uh, industry as a whole um, could begin to look at how they could, uh, you know, um, operate their business uh, in a more sustainable way and, and reducing, uh, you know, as much of the inefficiency and waste uh, that might exist today. So traceability of supply chains is is one 
application for this in the sustainability realm, uh, because as we want to understand if things coming are coming from uh, well-managed forests or fisheries or uh, whatever the chain of custody it has been, we need to know that. What are some of the other applications of the blockchain uh, for people in the sustainable business world? Right. So one of the related applications within the supply chain is food safety. And Walmart is spending some time um, focusing on that. They've got project in China and in the United States where they're looking at where the food came from, the shelf life, and they're tying it to the information that's already available about the product. If I, and I, if I might pause for a moment, one of the reasons that blockchain is so interesting is because it does build on the barcode technologies, the sensor technologies that already live in the in the supply chain, right? They can accept data from those sensors and they can give data back to those sensors. But also uh, supply, uh, blockchain is becoming a very interesting technology in, in terms of grid applications. People, Some people believe that it will help the mechanism that will help organizations, whether it's a utility or a corporation that's trying to sell excess power. But they, many people believe that blockchain will play a role in facilitating and automating transactions. And this could actually uh, help facilitate the buying and selling of energy without the use of utilities, which can, in some cases around the grid, can be uh, the block, uh, not a blockchain, but the blocking uh, (laughs) of of, uh, a transaction because they don't want to get in the middle of it or it's too expensive or they just didn't have the technology to do that. So, yeah, I can sell excess energy to someone and record the transaction, get paid. In fact, uh, all of us at home probably, I think, you know, even if it's just, we could exchange among our neighbors, uh, even if we just Mm -hmm. get pennies per day or a dollar or so here and there. There's a great experiment in Brooklyn that does just that. It's a a whole neighborhood um, that's um, using blockchain to sort of trade the energy. So neighbor one, number one has solar panels, neighbor number two doesn't, but wants to use some of the solar power. Neighbor number one doesn't eat it and lets the other person buy it. Now, the thing that happens the thing that's really interesting is that happens in the background, right? So you define the rules for when that might happen, um, and but then you don't have to worry about it. It just happens. So one of the interesting things about that Brooklyn project is it involves a, a big company, Siemens, a big a German multinational, and a, and a startup called LO3. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how these big companies and these small companies play together. I, I'm wondering, Heather, how... We, you know, the, the sort of keeping track and certifying these kinds of transactions. Uh, are, are there new new players coming in to do that? Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned before uh, the, the sort of startup plus big company uh, equation, and there's definitely a, a similar scenario in a company called Everledger. They uh, started up in in London, and they're focused on certifying diamonds, right? So certifying the provenance of a diamond, as well as hey. Is this diamond real? Is has someone switched this diamond and faked it? Um, and so they are working with the Kimberly process, which is the the process that came into place to to really address the whole blood diamonds uh, scenario. Um, and again, as I mentioned, the thing that makes them interesting is they are a startup. They they're building out this system for tracking both the physical attributes of a diamond as well as the digital transactions related to to it you know so this diamond came from here um it's been bought by this this jewelry organization um it could have this insurance and so forth but like i said i they're they're a very interesting company because they kind of they handle both the digital tracking as well as the 
physical tracking of this of this item, and they they're coming into play to help make the Kimberly put the Kimberly process into the blockchain. So definitely, that's that's a that's a cool application um, that involves both a startup and big some pretty big banks, uh, Barclay and AMB Ombro. Here's what the founder Leanne Kemp had to say about how how she's progressing. We began working. Um you know, in April last year, uh, we were accepted into Barclays and, you know, Barclays Bank as a part of their accelerator program for three months. And through that time, you know, it was interesting because most people looked at that and said, I mean, Everledger, diamonds, blockchain, hang on a minute, isn't this a payment system? <laughs> Why are you using this for objects? It doesn't make sense. But for me, because I didn't come from a banking background, you know, I could decouple the currency from the ledger and it made perfect sense to me. It was patently obvious that that's how or what you could use this technology for. But it was very early days, and so a lot of people uh, looked curiously at the direction we were taking. And, of course, Barclays, they're both a bank and an insurance company in Africa, and the volume of the world's diamonds is still mining Africa today. So it was actually quite a strong and strategic positioning for us so from April last year through the balance of 2015, we just literally put our head down and began working um, quite heavily within the diamond industry, forged a series of um, educational processes with some of the largest names in the industry, and within the first six months um, uh, managed to integrate uh, across the 10 major certificate houses and onboard about a half a million diamonds. I think by the end of the year it was about 900,000. You know, a million diamonds goes a long way, but it actually doesn't go across the entire supply chain of the industry and in that we'd need to go from a million to four million to 20 million quite quickly. And, of course, some of the issues as, you know, the, the evolution of the technology was coming about, scalability was, was a problem. Um, you know, the tool sets that were available to us were the Bitcoin blockchain and then, of course, Ethereum was coming on and then we started to see a lot of the other corporate players with, Hyperledger and the open source and, and community starting to form. And then over the course of the last eight months, that's really gone from strength to strength with not just only IBM's involvement, but the other corporate partners with Cisco and, and what have you at the table as well. So from groceries to gemstones, I mean, this has a, a lot of potential here. And one of the things we're hearing, I mean, there's just a, been a ton of hype just over this uh, past year during 2016 about this. In fact, Ginny Romady the CEO chairman of IBM has said some version of this, that the blockchain is the new internet, which is to say that it's not just a technology. It's not just an application. It's really a platform to do things that we haven't really imagined yet. Is that really what's going on here? Is this have that kind of potential? I think it really does. Um, I think it'll probably happen much more slowly than we would all like. Uh, there will be, we're, we're, we're in the hype cycle right now, right? I, my, my email box is, inbox is filled with, with pitches about new, new ideas every morning. And certainly IBM would love to see it take off quickly. And, and there's definitely a lot of pilots going on, but there's so many things to work out. For example, security will be, of course, a consideration. The thing that makes that very interesting, though, is that the information doesn't live in one place. So in order to be successful, an attack would have to be across the entire blockchain. It would have to hit every element of the distributed network or the service that it, that it involves. So it's much tougher to break. And, you know, with it, it takes a lot of data, right? So, so that will be one of the gaining factors as well. But like I said, I'm going to go back to my uh, experience as a technology journalist for a lot of time. It's, 
all of a sudden this this will be in place, right? So we're hearing a lot about it now. It's going to go quiet. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's going to be <laughs> in more places than we realize. And I think given the benefits, uh, especially for traceability um, and for automation, right, especially in the grid, this could be really the thing that helps the grid 2.0 concept flip over into grid 3.0, right? So we know we need to change the grid. And this could be a technology that really helps automate a lot of the things we'd love to see happen, but we just don't have the resources to handle efficiently or manually. Great. The uh, blockchain coming soon to a transaction near you. Uh, Green, <laughs> Greenbiz senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks for filling us in. Thanks, Joel. So one of the pieces we ran this week was uh, by our eco-leadership columnist, Anna Clark, who's president of Earth People Media, a sustainability communications firm, um, about the Climate Reality Project and the 24 Hours of Reality, of reality program, this uh, day-long global event uh, uh, put together, hosted by Al Gore. And uh, first of all, welcome from Dallas. Hey, Anna Clark. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, how did you get involved with uh, the uh, Climate Reality Project and, and uh, the 24 Hours of Reality? Well, I've been following Al Gore's work like all of us um, since he came out with An Inconvenient Truth and before that, of course. But as a sustainability communications consultant, I've been really interested in how his outfit Climate Reality Project has managed to create essentially an army of advocates who are all on message uh, with you know a very unified and very informed message about climate change and kind of seeing the impact of that. Uh, when I got an invitation to attend the 24 Hours of Reality event in New York City, which I ended up not being able to attend, but I did virtually, I, I just couldn't help but want to cover it. it. It seemed like a transformative moment. So 24 Hours of Reality, as I said, is a day-long event, and it's it's hour-long segments from 24 different uh, places on the, on the planet, right? Tell, tell us a little bit about how it works. Yeah, so I thought this was a really uh, exciting format from a sustainability communication point of view, because it was a live stream kind of... Uh, event that uh, Mr. Gore hosted, but he had a lot of different community leaders from around the world and celebrities who joined him for 24 solid hours of free public access kind of content around climate change. And I think what was really unique about this program was the localization feature of it, because they focus on one country every, 20, every hour of 24 hours. So we are talking climate change from the standpoint of sea level rise for folks in Buenos Aires, and then also kind of desertification and issues around um, heat for people in Saudi Arabia and so forth. Very unique format that I think reached people. And in fact, it 
the aim was to reach as many as 275 million people. Do you know whether they achieved that? You know, I don't, but I know that they did end up broadcasting and reaching about 100 countries with this. And some of the people that I did end up speaking to told me about webcasts that they had in companies and different places around the world. So it's fair to say that they reached a broad group of stakeholders. And I think that's what's so important Um, in so many of these instances, we learn about the need for stakeholder engagement across business and civic uh, kind of constituencies. So one of the people you talked to uh, was uh, Ken Berlin, the CEO of the Climate Reality Project, really just uh, within an hour or two of of the event starting. I mean, what did you learn from him in terms of uh, some of the corporate communications uh, pieces that that they've been incorporating into this or any of the other things that might be relevant to some of the companies listening? Well, I think it was a it presents a model in corporate communication, and and that's something that gets lost with a movement like this. I think people end up looking at it as something for advocates, but it's really really as something for everyone in terms of messaging because they they streamline it. They take the all of the points that the different people would need to learn, and by people I mean the way the project works is it trains three times a year a year in different countries that taking a class of approximately 500 to 800 people uh, per location and putting them through a training where they are all learning the same uh, kind of speaking points that come straight from the scientific community and policymakers. So it's very substantive material that the people are learning. And then they are uh, really put through a rigorous training in social media, how to leverage Twitter, how to use Facebook. And I mean, anybody who's used these things knows what a headache it can be to sit down and craft a single tweet. So the idea that they could furnish a lot of this content and help people learn how to distribute it across platforms to actually really educate people in their trusted networks is you know, potentially transformative. Right. Although some people are pretty good at tweeting in the middle of the night, so it's not all that hard. Uh, you, you know, I think one of the challenges here is as, as a communications professional uh, and uh, all of us who are in this part of the world, uh, communications-wise and, and climate, just this is so challenging to, to, as you write about filtering, contextualizing, and amplifying uh, this message. And it, this is some complexity here. Uh, so how are we, how we going to deal with that better? Um, that seems to be a big challenge that companies are facing and communicators of all kinds are facing. Yeah, I, lo- I mean, I really like kind of the the really in-depth aspect of this and from a communication point of view, as you know, Joel, I'm kind of working on completing my master's in communication. And I chose that because I realized that that's the dimension of sustainability that is probably one of the most necessary, but one of the least um, really appreciated. And this is a perfect example. I mean, we when I at COP21 last year in Paris, uh, I was, of course, as you know, reporting from the green zone. And I felt like it was a great luxury to be there and have access to this incredible information that people, leader after leader, was presenting. And even there, I mean, next door in the blue zone was where all the dignitaries were actually doing um, the thing. But we were getting some really fantastic information. And I realized this this agreement, this Paris Agreement, that the entire world would essentially have to support to fulfill uh, was very little. There was very little understanding around it and continues to be. So I think it's really exciting that this project and really any organization at this point should be doing this is is focusing on how to educate people and equip people wherever they are in companies as well 
to make the changes that will help us all fulfill um, that agreement. And so it's it's really just kind of bringing more real world. Here's the challenge and opportunity of each type of action to people in a way that makes sense to them. So I think kind of to sum up on the communication end is a lot of this still remains very kind of, um, you know, esoteric or not relevant to a lot of people. And I think what was really unique about this event and the way it continues to educate um, climate communicators is that it's helping people reach others where they are. And with the most of the conversation still concentrated in policy and the scientific community and not getting down to the mainstream in masses, you know, where companies are missing an opportunity also to actually market these products the way they need to. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions here, you sort of got to it a little bit just now is that did, did this uh, 24 hours of reality, do you think it broke out beyond the choir, beyond the bubble, the people who are already in, engaged and concerned about climate change? You know, it's hard to know. I mean, I, you know, what I think though about that is, is I think that there's still a lot of value to preaching to the choir and it's not really preaching to the choir. What I mean is, you know, really equipping the, um, the army properly so that they can be more effective as they go out there and reach others. I mean, in the normal diffusion of innovation or any social change curve, we know that the early adopters are the most excited people or what have you. I mean, those are going to be the first to get any message about anything new. I think we're at kind of a tipping point, but at the same time, I'm also living in an area that, well, Dallas, Texas. So I, I know how little knowledge is still kind of out there, even among very educated people. And it's not for lack of, well, maybe it is for lack of interest. I mean, there's there's got to be somebody who's willing to to get out there and educate the community. And that goes for educated people in professional environments. If they're not going to get this from someone they trust, they may just kind of tune it out even now. Clearly, I think we have evidence of that. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks, that, uh, thanks to Al Gore for continuing to uh, lead that charge of getting this out there, keeping it out there and trying to explain it. And Thank you, Anna Clark, for uh, filling us in about the Climate Reality Project. Um, Anna Clark, president of Earth People Media in Dallas, Texas, uh, and a regular columnist for GreenBiz. Great talking to you. Thanks, Joel. Take care. to believe it's already mid-December, but next week we have an interesting free webcast coming up on what sustainability executives need to know about microgrids. This will key in specifically on the influence of sustainability executives on corporate energy policies and procurement, so be sure to tune in for that on December 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can always get more information about all of our upcoming events, both in person and online by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. Thanks, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organization's stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks as always to podcast director, Saraya Melkonian. 
send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. 350 at greenbiz.com and help us spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or any other way you want to help us build the audience for GreenBiz 350 podcast. Meanwhile, we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.